Well, church, today uh, I'm going to do something different. I'm just going to give you a topical sermon on how to be a good citizen in the year 2020, or really any year, but 2021, excuse me, since we're in that year. Oh, you're late. Um, I'm glad 2020 is behind us, by the way. But anyway, 2021. Um, so how to be a good citizen as we walk under the banner of Christ. 1893, there's a woman named Kathy Lee Bates, Catherine Lee Bates, who is professor at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. She goes to Colorado to give a lectureship on English and literature and poetry. It's close to Pikes Peak. She takes a two-day break, and she and some friends want to go to, the, to Pikes Peak. That's over 14,000 feet. There, by the way, there are 14, I found, there are 90, I think 96, 14,000 or more peaks in our United States, and 53 of them are in Colorado. So anyway, they go to Pikes Peak. She goes up as far as she can go in a wagon, and then she and her friends get out and go to the top by mule. And she said she thought this is an arduous trip, not worth it, until she got to the top. And she said as she looked over the top, all of America was thrown open before her, and she was thunderstruck by the absolute beauty. She went down and she wrote a poem. She was a poet, and she wrote this poem entitled Pike's Peak, that two years later that was published in a journal of poetry, and the editors changed the title to America, and then in 1910, a man that she never met put the poetry to music, and it became a well-known song that we sing called America the Beautiful. In fact, many people say that should be our national anthem, because it is such a lovely song, but you know the song, America, uh, spacious skies, amber waves of grain, purple mountains, majesty above the fruited plain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. But I want to call your attention to the second stanza, which I think is appropriate. O beautiful for pilgrim's feet, whose stern impassioned stress, a thoroughfare for freedom's beat across the wilderness. America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Conform thy soul in self-control and thy liberty in law. Just the line. God mend thine every flaw. There's a statement in the worship guide from a journal I like to read entitled Public Discourse. This was written two years ago, three years ago now by a young man. It says this. I'm just going to read a paragraph and a half. Patriotic affection ought to elicit a further desire to protect and promote America's goodness. Americans today are the beneficiaries of those who pledge their lives and sacred honor to form this country. Those who spent their lives in the struggle to keep it and those who have worked tirelessly to shape it into a more perfect union. We have many blessings to be grateful for and the appropriate product of our gratitude is a desire to promote these blessings. On down in this article, he writes, because true patriotism appreciates America's charms, but refuses to esteem her faults, it does not cause us to blindly endorse everything our country is and has been. It will not even permit us to be unmoved by our country's sins. We promote our country's goodness both by celebrating its virtues and by identifying and remedying its vices. This patriotism 
will not allow us to mark as noble what is ignoble. So we are people who say that there are flaws, but we're glad, I would say I'm glad to be an American. There's a man named Oliver Cromwell, if you know English history, he was the Lord Protector of England in the middle part of the 1600s between two royal reigns, and he was part of something called the Roundheads or the Puritans. He was a godly man in many ways, but he was the leader of England. He had his, someone uh, commissioned to paint his likeness, and so he sat for the painting, and the painting was unveiled, and Oliver Cromwell, I think you'll see a shot up here, Oliver Cromwell was a guy that had uh, a big wart here and a big, big wart there. And so Cromwell goes, uh, where, where are my warts? He said, well, I, I didn't think you'd want me to paint your warts. He said, no, paint me warts and all, his comment. Now, today we have Photoshopping, so we can all look much better than we would ever look. But um, my concern as an older guy is that Instead of saying warts and all, I hear many people today saying only warts. I am glad to be an American. I'm the beneficiary of people who have lived and loved. I, I grew up in the home of a World War II vet. I worked every summer. My dad would help build houses. I would work with World War II vets every summer. And I'll never forget. I, I met a man. He was there, and he was there and back. And, and I found out later he struggled with alcohol. And my dad said to me, I said, I said son, I don't. You know, I don't agree with his lifestyle, but he said he was a prisoner of war of the Japanese for three years. If I had been through what he had been through, I don't know if I'd be different. I mean, that's, I lived in that context. I went to the Citadel, for heaven's sake. Uh, whenever I hear an airplane fly over, one of our U.S. Air Force planes, I would turn to my kids in the car and said, that's the sound of freedom. I, I'm proud to be an American. But... We always, if you're a believer, you march primarily under the banner of Jesus, under the cross. And so we always say we must obey God and not man from Acts chapter 5. So I'm just going to talk this morning about, about how to be a good citizen as a believer. There's a guy named G.K. Chesterton who was a famous wit, died in 1930. And G.K. Chesterton says, when someone says he was a Brit, if someone says, my country right or wrong, it's like saying, my mother drunk or sober. <laughs> and he said, you, know, you don't say that. You don't want your mom to be an alcoholic. You want her to be sober and flourish. He says, so we want our country to flourish. So four ways to be a good patriot as you're a believer in Jesus. The, the, the first is this. If I'm to be a good patriot, I must understand that my ultimate allegiance, your ultimate allegiance is to Christ and our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul says it is in the sermon guide. He, he talks about a group of people that were trying to detract from the gospel. And he says, for, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. With mindset on earthly things, but, glorious conjunction, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious 
body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul says that these people walk, they're, they're their God is their belly. He doesn't mean that they overeat necessarily. They may, they may have done that. He says, but, but, but they're looking for all of their fulfillment and all their hope and everything that their hearts long for in this world only in satisfying their desires. Therefore, their mind is only on earthly things. But our citizenship, if you're a believer in Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. And, and we eagerly await a Savior who will come from there on the final day of the resurrection. And he gives us resurrection bodies and will be with the Lord forever. See, so, so I would argue that historically, the people that have believed that and lived that and clung to that have done the most good for their country, their community, their subdivision. You'll hear people say, well, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. And C.S. Lewis really attacks that in a little book called Mere Christianity. There's a quote in your worship guide. Lewis says, says, when you have a heaven mindset, this means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or mere wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought the most about the next. There's an obligation in our hearts. We read 1 Peter 2 that says, you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God that you may declare his praises. You read in 1 Corinthians 6 that we were bought with the price for to glorify God with our body. I would argue that, that, that if you look at the history of, for example, prison reform, who insisted on prison reform through the centuries? Christians. If you look at the, the compulsion for, for universal literacy and education, who pushed that and prodded that and, and, and longed for that? Christians. If you look for hospitals that were set up to, to aid people that were hurting and, and, and down on their luck, who did that? Christians. It's called the Red Cross. Believers in Jesus who, who did these things. Who, who was at the forefront and, and today and standing for the sanctity of human life? Christians. People who know Jesus. Who, the U.S. State Department two years ago released a study that said that every year in the world there are 600 to 800,000 women and children who cross international boundaries for the purpose of primarily sexual exploitation, sexual slavery. Who is pleading for that to be addressed and eradicated? Christians. See, that, 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 so we just had a, uh, I mentioned last week, Southern Baptist Convention, and there was a, um, we met 15,000 people, 10 resolutions. A resolution is adopted annually to say it's non-binding on the churches, but it just says this is our mindset. This is where we're going. There's a, a resolution to support the Hyde Amendment. There's a resolution speaking against the Equality Act. There was a resolution, I think I mentioned last week, saying that if someone is convicted of a crime against a child sexually, they should never serve as a leader in the church as elder or pastor. So these, but there was one resolution that I read, and I, I, my heart, it made my heart sing. 
is resolution number eight. I'm going to read part of it to you. It's a resolution on the Uyghur genocide. I mentioned that before, but the Uyghurs are a Muslim minority group in China. They live in southwest China. When I was there a few years ago, I met a lot of them and had the chance to be with them. They were delightful people. And, and the, the, in the last years, the, Chi- the Chinese government has put them in, quote, re-education camps. One to 1.5 million people. And I'll just read part of this to you. This is not PG-13, but this is a resolution that says, because God created man in his own image, because he's fearfully and wonderfully made, credible reporting from human rights journalists and researchers concludes that more than a million Uyghurs, more than a million, 1.5, A majority Muslim ethnic group living in Central and East Asia have been detained in a network of concentration camps in Xinjiang province in the People's Republic of China. Whereas atrocities reported by major media outlets against the Uyghur people by the Communist Party of China include forced abortions, rape, sexual abuse, sterilization, internment in concentration camps, organ harvesting, human trafficking, scientific experimentation, the sale of human hair forcibly taken from those in concentration camps, family separation, forced re-education of children, forced labor and torture. Whereas the United States State Department, the Canadian Parliament, the United Kingdom Parliament, the Dutch Parliament, and the Lithuanian Parliament have declared the action of the Chinese Communist Party against the Uyghur people to be a genocide, which means a a wiping out, a destruction. Because of that, we plead with our State Department to continue to speak against this as it did in the previous administration. We call upon the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China to cease this program of genocide against the Uyghur people immediately and restore to them their full God-given rights and put an end to their captivity and systematic persecution and abuse, so forth and so on. Now, you say, well, really? 15,000 people meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, passed this resolution, it's in some papers. Is it really going to impact the Chinese government? Probably not. But there's a God who hears our prayers. And there's a God who moves in human history. And let me tell you something. When I stand against something like that and I'm aware of something like that, or I'm aware of the Rohingya crisis, crisis in Burma, or I'm aware of the Boko Haram in Nigeria where they're forcibly taking young, and, and, and I, I'm aware of that, and I pray, it gets me outside of myself and my subdivision and my HOA and my budget. It gives me a view of the world that is more embracive and Jesus honoring. So it, it does something to me when I think about this. It does something to cause me to do, to live differently, to, to pray differently, to pray more, more assiduously, to fast more often. So see, if, if I'm going to be a good citizen in this country, I must have a loyalty to Jesus that is beyond what I hear in my culture. It trumps anything in my culture. Number two, if I'm going to be a good citizen, I should pray for those in authority. It's very basic. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, I, I, I ask you to do this. He says, I, I ask you to pray for kings, for all those in authority, that, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. 
good, godly, and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So we pray. We pray that we would be able to live peaceful and quiet lives, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, the first liberty, freedom. And that we could live in such a way that, that we could live godly, which refers to developing godly standards with the Lord, and dignified, I believe, talks about the people around us. It means to be grave. It means to, be, to take life seriously. As we talk to each other, we say that there's something more to life than, than September 4th in Charlotte when Clemson plays Georgia. I'm really looking forward to that. Man, I am counting the dates. But, but, but there's something more to life than the football game. There's something more to life than, than my body mass index. There, there, there's something more to life than, than this. It, it is something that is glorious and grand. It's called the kingdom of Jesus. So peaceful and quiet lives and godly and dignified. The, the word dignified is used to describe elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, or Titus 2, the, the older men. In other words, a leader must understand that things, there are certain things that are incredibly grave and live on the basis of that. There's a book that I wish everyone would read. It's a weighty book. It's entitled The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Day Self by Carl Truman. Again, it's a weighty book, but he, he, he talks about how, he traces it back for several centuries, but just how we become super autonomous without any belief in responsibility or answering to the God who is there. And, and, and he says in his book, he says really the, the result of that is two major things. He says, when you believe that you're autonomous and you're the final arbiter and decision maker of all that you are and all that you do, then there is a plasticity, plastic, a plasticity to truth and to yourself. He says, for example, he says, if you believe that you determine who you are, then, then, then you can be a male today or a female tomorrow. Or you can be heterosexual today, homosexual tomorrow, pansexual the next day. Because you called the shots. He says, but, but, but if you believe there's a great God who's spoken, See, and we step back and we say to today's people involved in the trans movement, you know, gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. He made us male and female. We rejoice in that. We're glad because there's a great God who made the heavens and the earth. But if you don't believe that, he says, that's part of it. He says the second result is, is the, the cynical kind of disbelief in, in any binding authority that God has established, institutions. God has established the family. The church and the home, the church and the government. God has given us our officials. And if we step back and we just we cynically cast Molotov cocktails at, at, at people in, in the home, the church, especially in the government, it, it, it does nobody any good. I'm telling you, the Bible says we're to pray for those in authority. We, still, we speak our, the truth. We must obey God and not man. It's not carte blanche. But we're to pray for those in authority. And I look at this and look at me. And I'll just, you know, there, there's, we have a present administration that many people here did not vote for. I understand that. But my, my commitment is that every time I criticize somebody in the government, I should pray for them two times more than I'm critical. We should pray. We should pray that God would protect and give wisdom to our government officials so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. We pray that. We long for that. That's the people we should be. So just my, my encouragement is pray for people. 
Don't become cynical, uncaring, callous, but pray. If I'm to be a, a good citizen under the banner of Jesus, I pray for those in authority because I believe that God gives us government. Thirdly, if I'm to be a good citizen, I must be someone who stands for the dignity and uniqueness of all men and women in light of the fact that they are made in the image of God. Because men and women are made, are made in the image of God because they're rational. They can express joy and beauty and truth and they can appreciate life because they're made in the image of God. They're worthy of respect and Christian love. To say people are made in the image of God is a radical statement today. It's radical. You will not meet a person today who is not made in the image of God. Everywhere you go, every person you meet, made in the image of God. And therefore, they're worthy of respect and Christian love. There are no little people. There are no little places. There are people who are image bearers. Now, if you go out this week, think of your neighborhood, where you work, family, and you meet someone who's a noble, well-meaning person who's a secularist. But by that I mean they believe all the beauty around us and all the greens and all the miracle of life, they believe it all is kind of the impersonal plus time plus chance. It just kind of happened. There's, there's no great God behind it who's the lawgiver, who's written his, his truth on our hearts. We believe that. He's written his truth on our hearts, certain standards on our hearts. And, and so he's just, it's just, life is, is a, just kind of happened. And if you say to them, is racism wrong? Well, yeah. Is, is, is what is being done to the Uyghur people in China right now, forced concentration, sterilization, abortion, um, Organ, organ harvesting. When you kill people and take the organs out, it's amazing. Is that wrong? Yeah. Why? I have a four-year-old grandson, almost four. And he has learned the word why. He'll be four in August. Every time I ask him to do anything, this is what he says. Why? Kind of whiny, like from New Jersey or something. Why? You know? And I go, oh my gosh, you know, why? Well, he's serious. He's not trying to be, now when he's 13, he'll just be blowing me off. Why? No. But he's serious. But, but you ask, why is it wrong? Why is racism wrong? Well, I just think it is. Well, you know, there's a lot of people in Germany in 1933 that didn't think racism was that bad. And they probably had a higher IQ than you and I do. Why is it wrong? They have no basis. They have no basis. We say it's wrong because men and women are made in the image of God. And all of us have a common heritage in Adam and Eve. And every man and woman deserves respect and Christian love. Whether they're on death row or receiving the Nobel Prize for physics, they deserve respect and Christian love because they're made in the image of God. And as our culture becomes more and more unsevered from the roots that are, are made Western civilization, there's going to be more and more and more and more of, of a lack of understanding and the basis for that which brings dignity and life to people. You see, The sanctity of human life, being pro-life, saying life is a gift from God, life in the womb must be protected, is not a political issue. 
It's a biblical issue from the throne of the Almighty God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Protecting people who are considered expendable is not, it's an issue that flows from the throne of God. We stand for the dignity of men and women. We have a place to stand because they're made in the image of God. And more and more and more and more, I believe, our culture is going to look upon people as being valuable based upon what they bring to the playing field. If they're young and bright and trained and can make money and pay taxes, welcome to the team. But if they're not in that particular hemisphere, you're expendable, you're on the bench, you're out of the stadium, you're gone. And we say no. There's a little statement of the Baptist faith and message, and I love it. I'm just going to read part of it to you. It's just part of it here. It says, all Christians are under obligation. See, under obligation. I love that. Under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphaned and the needy and the abused and the aged and the helpless and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. We're under obligation. This is who we are. Fourthly, if we are to be good citizens, we must ponder and think deeply about this verse, Proverbs 14, verse 34, that says this. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness, which means obeying and living out the reality of God in a happy fashion. Righteousness exalts a nation. It exalts a family, it exalts a marriage, it exalts a community, it exalts a church. Righteousness exalts people, but sin is disdainful, is odious, is vomitous, is, is ulcerous to any people. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that Jesus brings flourishing to marriages and to homes and to people? There's a little statement from the New City Catechism in the worship guide, it says, what else does Christ's death redeem? I love this. Christ's death is the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and the creation's good. The death of Jesus unleashes the forces of power and goodness in the name of the Savior. He is renewing you today by the Holy Spirit. He's touching today by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's changing us by his work. Do, do I really believe in my heart of heart that right living, holy living, Jesus honoring living exalts a family, a nation, a, a, a whatever. And sin is a disdainful, vomitous reproach to people. I need to live that way. I need to rejoice in that and be glad in that. On this uh, 4th of July, I thought often of a, of a statement by, by Ruth Graham. I've heard this for years. I've never done the research on it. 
Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, who was raised in China. Her parents were medical missionaries in China. She said, if God does not judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities in the book of Genesis that were given to sexual excess and sexual perversion, and God, God judged them. So we've always talked about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. If God doesn't judge America, he'll have to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. So I did some research. You know when she made that statement? 1965. <laughs> now, for those of us, I was in the fourth grade, okay, so I wasn't exactly thinking about life that much, but if you go back in the time machine, 1965 was 11 years after Brown versus Board of Education where the Supreme Court ruled wisely that separate but equal was unconstitutional. So we were going through the birth pangs of, of I remember my school, integration. It was a glorious civil rights movement. It was, it was good. That, that was probably the big issue. That was before Vietnam. But that, that was the big issue, I think. Divorce rates were single digit. That was before no-fault divorce. It says, yeah, get divorced for no reason. That was when the, the, the believe it or not, the illegitimacy birth rate was 5% among Anglos, 11% among African Americans. Today it's 28 and 70. It's amazing. So, so I, I, I thought, what would Ruth Graham say if she were transported here today, 2021. This side of Roe v. Wade, 1973, abortion decision, 60 million babies have been aborted in our country. 60 million. This side of the legalization of same-sex marriage, this side of the, the wide-open LGBTQ movement, this side of all these things. What, what, you know what she said? See, my encouragement to you is to understand your culture. You all heard the story about the frog in the kettle. You know, frogs put on a stove and the kettle and the, the water's just turned up and turned up and turned up and he's happy, 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 and then he's boiled to death. We're in a kettle, brothers and sisters. We need the brethren around us to speak truth, to live under the authority of this book as we're trying to be good citizens, to understand Righteousness exalts a family, a community, a church, a nation. But sin is a reproach. And then I thought about one of the last lengthy interviews her husband gave. Her husband died in 2018. In one of his last interviews, Billy Graham said this. He says, my heart grieves for America and her deceived people. <laughs> deceived people. So I, I was thinking about how to just close this exhortation to be a good citizen. And I, I thought about an old hymn. Many of us sung, have sung this growing up. We haven't sung it in years because this hymn was removed because it was judged to be, from some hymnals, because it was judged to be too militaristic. And I just, it's one of my favorite hymns. And uh, I thought people that say this is militaristic have never read the words to this hymn. What's the hymn? Anybody guess? Almer Christian soldiers. 
Let me just read it to you. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe forward into battle. See his banners go. It's not, man, we're carrying the cross. And we're saying carrying the banners that say he is Lord, he is risen, he's king. And we're carrying wash basins and towels. And we're listening and we're carrying and we're gracious. There's, no, there's nothing militaristic about this. It's a bunch of, it's an army of lambs. See? Next stanza. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. Stop. I love that line. We're treading. We stand on the shoulders of men and women who've gone before us and paid the price with dignity and grace. How will we respond? I'm always thinking about the coming generations. How will the coming generations respond to the way we lived? Brothers, listen. We're treading where the saints have trod. We're not divided, all one army, we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Next stanza. Crowns and thrones may perish. They do. Kingdoms rise and fall. They do. Nations rise and fall. But the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against that church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, and that cannot fail. Countries don't last forever. The kingdom does. Last stanza. Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng. Happy. I'm going to be happy. Blend with ours your voices in the triumph song. Glory, Lord, and honor unto Christ the King. This through countless Ages, men and angels sing, onward, Christian soldier, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Why are we a happy throng? It's because we believe there's a great God who's building his church, who's sovereign and who's king. And I don't understand that. I don't get it all the time. Believe me. But his purposes are real and fixed and true. And not a hair can fall from my head without his knowledge. He, he, he knows he's counting my days. I can trust him. So I'm happy because I live in obedience we walk in obedience, we walk in love, we walk under the authority of the scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit to the honor of Jesus, and we leave the results with him because he reigns and he's king and he's our refuge. God, we just quoted, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, listen, we will not fear though all the earth should change and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Even you're standing in the streets of Pompeii under the Mount Vesuvius and it falls into the sea. You say, I'm going to trust the Lord. Say, join our happy throng. Listen, be good citizens under the banner of Jesus. Pray for those in authority. Fix your eyes on heaven. Stand resolutely for the dignity of all men and women in a culture that's downgrading people as people. And, 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 be, and be people who Understand and rejoice in the fact that God, in his mercy, has given us standards. He, he blesses us and exalts a nation. You know? Amen. Let's pray. So, Lord, we are um, we're your people and the sheep of your pasture. And we pray earnestly 
for our leaders. Um, we pray that you give our President Biden and Vice President Harris uh, wisdom and insight. We pray you'd speak to their hearts, Lord. You'd bring people in their lives who speak the word of Jesus to them that aren't tantalized by the trappings of their office, but, but they're tantalized by the glory of Jesus. We pray for our state and local officials, Lord, that, that we would you know, pray for them and long for their welfare, that, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in our dignity and honor and with a grave disposition. We, we pray that we as people, Lord, that we would speak out against uh, that which is not merciful and kind, that we would give dignity to all men and women, even those who violently disagree with us. We would, they're still made in the image of God and they're worthy of respect in Christian life, even as they, 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 they say salacious things, even as they may even raise their fist or spit upon us, or in some parts of the world, even as they behead us and imprison us and torture brothers and sisters. I thank you that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Thank you for that hope, in Jesus' name. Amen.